Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Doug Padgett here out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a Thursday, and uh, super excited about our conversation today. But uh, as we often do, we like to just say hello wherever we're from. I am just on the outskirts of Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a lovely day out. Spring has not been kind to the people who live here uh, where I live. But we're hoping that late spring and early summer, you know, has a little smile for the for the rest of us. But I have been spending the last couple of days in Nashville, and it wasn't nice there in Nashville either in the spring. So it's been just cold and rainy and, and difficult, uh, I think, in lots of parts of the country. That brings us to Dan Dietrich, who's over there in South Bend, Indiana. Good morning, Dan. Hey, good to be here. How's the weather there? Brutal. There was an inch of snow a day ago, and it's been cold and rainy since, but it's looking better this weekend, so... Well, that old saying, April snowstorms spring. No, it's not the saying, is it? It's April, <laughs> it's April showers. Hey, Randy, uh, good good to see you uh, coming to us from the northwest outside of Portland. We always talk about the weather because it's the one thing that people actually have to share, and it's one thing we can't do anything about, and it's one thing of nature that is our uh, our constant um, uh, uh, context that we find ourselves in. So I think it's going to go well with this conversation, too. But how are things out in the upper northwest uh, overall and weather-wise? Yeah, so talking about the weather, you know, is probably one of our most primal instincts, I think. Um, and so we all have go back to this common ancestry where we're all like worried about what's going to happen today. Um, it's been uh, pretty brutal here in the Pacific Northwest. Last April was the driest and hottest on record. This April is looking like it's going to be the coldest and wettest on record. And we got all of a sudden a bunch of, you know, like uh, 32 and 31 and 35 degree nights, which I know it's not much when you're in Minnesota, but, but here is very unusual at this time of year. So it's kind of been crazy. We've had to put off our planting here at Taylor for, for a while. Yeah. And uh, people maybe learn this in our conversation, but you all run quite a little, uh, quite a farm there. So it matters to you in your own life and your own work and what, what you're up to. Okay, so Randy, we saw from the backdrop, you're, you're a man who's a fan of books, and not only do you buy them and read them and put them on the shelves behind you, but you write them, and you've written a great one, and we're so glad to talk to you about this book you've written called Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Uh, it's uh, We were chatting beforehand. I'm glad to hear you say it's one of your favorites, favorites, because you know every once in a while, for those of us that are authors or interviewers of authors, you have to talk to someone or talk about a book you're not all that much a fan of. Uh, so it's kind of fun to know that, you know, you're, you're into this one. So, uh, Randy, g- give us a little bit of context and background on, on what, what you're writing about, because it's, it's so important. You know, you talk about how we're all from somewhere that's an important part of the book and then where we find ourselves and, and how we're going to live on and with and in the earth. But yeah. for people understanding our own stories, that uh, you, you have a particular way of thinking about it, and I think your own story is really helpful for people to kind of capture their own frame. So, so re- remind us, would you of, of your own background and and your yeah. your your heritage and your your people? Yeah, so um, I'm a mixed blood uh, Cherokee uh, and uh, white, uh, all kinds of whiteness, um, and um, yeah, I I was raised knowing that I had uh, uh, Indian identity and ancestry, even knowing who some of my relatives were and that sort of a thing. But um, my parents were fully assimilated into a Western sort of way of doing things. And I I say fully, they still retained a lot of sort of native values. I didn't realize at the time they were native values. But um, but one of the things I say in the book is that we're and now I'm a a legal recognized descendant of uh, by the uh, United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. But um, but, you know, I mean, the whole thing is this. We're all indigenous from somewhere. Um, you know, give, given time and given space and, um, everybody begins their DNA and their, um, ancestry, their deep DNA, um, with people who are indigenous and, uh, we've lost those ways, modernity and, you know, the, just the, the whole colonization thing and all of that empire has driven us away from the very thing that we naturally seek, which is to be in creation, to be in nature, and to learn from nature. And so what I'm trying to do in this book, uh, and like it says, it's 100 entries. It's 100 days. And they're very short, sort of bite-sized things. And then there's an action point after each one. And 
I had the thought that, you know, if, uh, because I mean, I, I have an agenda, you know, I always have the same agenda wherever I go, whatever I do, I am out to convert you from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview. Because I, I know that a Western worldview will not sustain us in the future. And it has not done a good job of sustaining us now. And that's why we're in such trouble. But I talk about that in some of my other books and things. But, but what I wanted to do in this one was to have people sort of walk alongside me and some of the elders and other people I've learned from for 100 days. And even if they just don't do 100 days and they just pick and choose and do some to sort of begin to look at life a little bit differently, to look at nature and the earth a little bit differently, to permission to fall in love with the earth again, if you will, and which is deep inside all of us, I think. Hmm. And, um, and and to walk in that and to learn about these things. There's 10 sections dealing with 10 different kind of areas. But, um, but, but by doing so, maybe our worldviews will begin to change. And so this is a book, instead of like dealing with – Platonic dualism and all those kinds of things I hit head on in other books and decolonization and all those. This is a way for me to walk beside people and to, to, to walk with them on this journey. And so I'm, I'm getting some really, really good feedback. So I, I, there's so much I want to, I want to ask you about. Um, can we talk about this notion of both being in that you write about in the book, both being indigenous and people coming to grips with that? And then now these are my words, but we're also all immigrants in some way. So we've moved to another place and the phrase you used was mixed blood or people have these blended cultures and blended ideas. That's, that's always been hard for people to make sense of. It feels like we're in a particularly uh, difficult or particularly um, um, intense cultural moment around a lot of this. You've been at this for a long time. You you know you tell the stories in your book about yourself, if, you know, starting in your twenties and sort of awakening and, and spending a, you know an adult's lifetime uh, on these issues. But boy, for a lot of other people, they're just newly awakening to a lot of these issues or approaching them in some new ways, and it can feel very fraught, right? From like, how do you think about indigenous peoples and what and what is in cultural appropriation and what's what's appropriate for someone to take on and should they be using you know, practices from indigenous peoples in their own lives. Like you're encouraging people to do that. You're saying like, come along, come walk this journey with me. And we want to show you some things and have you incorporate those ways. Other people are extremely nervous about that, right? They're like, I don't know if that's something appropriate to do. You've been at this a long time. How are you thinking about those, those kinds of issues? Yeah. So thanks. What I'm actually trying to do and I, and I even say so the the introduction is a very important part to this whole thing if you read the introduction I try to straighten some of that stuff out but I'm not asking people to to take up native traditions I'm asking people to deep uh, inside themselves to to reach for their own ancestral DNA uh, to understand what that is and to appreciate and love the land that is around them right now and to acknowledge the host peoples, of course, and to, to learn from them and their relationship. Um, but what I'm asking people to do is take on the values that developed as a result of those relationships, um, not the practices. So we have to sort of, and I, I give room there for, you know, reviving old practices and coming up with new practices and all those kinds of things. But, you know, not, not cultural appropriation. That's one misunderstanding is that, you know, each people group has their own sort of um, culture and ways of doing things. And we should like leave those alone unless we've been invited into them. But that doesn't mean that those same values that are found that are represented by the stories and by the ceremonies and those things can't be appropriated, if you will, um, because we all need those values to make it in this Turtle Island and really around the whole world um, if we're going to make it into the future. Do, do you feel, stepping away from the book for just a minute, do, do you feel like we're, are we in a better place dealing with these kinds of issues? I mean, I know we've talked before on this podcast and just in our friendship about growing up in the seventies as we did. And there was a, there was a big Indian movement and that there was a way that Americans inter interact. I think about 
you know, share singing Cherokee people. And there was a big movement, uh, around that. I have a Billy Jack poster behind me, this movie that was very, very, uh, influential on my own thinking as a kid. And I get to keep it around for a whole set of reasons, but there was a way of approaching, uh, Indian peoples in the United States and now that things are different and language has changed and how people refer to one another. Do you feel like we're in a, do you have any thoughts on just where we are? Are we in, are we in a good place, a different place, a less good place, anything? I, I do. Thank you. Um, I, I think, you know, part of what you're describing, of course, and you, you, you do a great cultural analysis of all this stuff, but is that, you know, as a boomer, um, you know, we, uh, we, we're the first generation, I think, in a long time to say, we reject our parents' paradigm. We don't want their stuff, you know, and, and then, you know, we, we came up with like Earth Day and, you know, we come, uh, women's, uh, burn the bra movement, women's rights and, you know, the ERA and, uh, you know, we stopped the Vietnam War. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, uh, what was the saying? Free drug, sex, and rock and roll, you know, and we, we invented yeah, a new kind of rock and roll. 30, that kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we didn't sustain that, you know. And then came the late 70s and 80s, and then everybody turned materialistic. I think the 80s were probably equal to the 50s and the materialism that they brought. Mm-hmm. And right now, we have two generations, the millennials and the Gen Zs, who are rejecting the paradigm. Hmm. They don't want the homophobia. They don't want the racism. They want community. They want justice, all of these things. And I'm very hopeful right now for Gen Z and millennials. And I'm, I'm just behind them all the way. And I just hope that, that they can sustain the movement because we failed. And yeah. so uh, um, there's that. And then as more and more um, uh, BIPOC are educated, uh, move up in platforms and places. Um, there's lots of different views being spread around. So, you know, like, you know, there's uh, womanism and there's, you know, um, um, lots of, uh, I wouldn't say lots, but a lot more people of color and women uh, moving into places where they have a voice. And so um, part, of, part of what white folks can do is to help amplify that voice. But, um in doing so, things are changing. And um, when you allow Native Americans to have a platform, you know, you're probably going to hear about some stuff you may not want to hear, but you're also going to probably hear about some wisdom that we need. And so um, the same is true of everyone else, of women, etc. cetera. And um, in this day, you know, whether it be social media or what's going on, I think it's a combination of a number of streams. Mm-hmm. But there's more platform, and I think there's more reality of change. And I think what we're seeing on the, um, the alt-right and the right is a sort of the death throes of kicking against this thing that's happening, but it's happening. I mean, just um, demographics alone show that it's happening. And so it's not going to be able to be prevented. And I just hope that, uh, that maybe some of us older folks can be there to guide some of these younger folks as they lead the way for us. Yeah, that's great. I'm an elder millennial myself. And so when you talk about rejecting the current paradigm, that that's me. And that's a lot of people I know. Deconstruction is a big word right now. And people have been calling it different things for a while. But I feel like there's a difference between deconstruction and decolonizing. I think when mm. I deconstructed my faith you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I wish I had known what decolonizing was because I sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater when really what I needed to have done was get rid of white evangelical American Christianity and discover the beautiful things beyond that. Can you talk about the difference between deconstruction and decolonizing? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, there's there's lots of ways we could sort of formulate these words in a conversation about them. So I'm not, um, I'm not big on like really getting specific about terms like that, because I think it's a Western obsession. Uh, But I think we know what we're talking about when we're talking about both words. There's a whole lot of similarity, right? But just in general, I would say deconstruction tends to be more of an individual process. 
whereas decolonizing is more of a systemic approach. And and I'm not trying to be strict with those definitions at all, but that's just sort of how I think of them. And we need both. We need to deconstruct our own lives and our own complicity and uh, in systems and all of that. But 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 uh, I can take that and, and and I could actually go with either term. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not that big a deal for me. Mm-hmm. But decolonizing, when I think of decolonizing, I'm thinking about taking down the system and creating a new one. So, Hey, you use a phrase in the book that I've never seen before. Um, it's uh, indigeneity. And um, is that a common word for people who talk about indigenous life and so on? And it's sort of the, the lived reality of being an indigenous person, or is that a phrase that you're bringing into the, into the popular vocabulary? I think it's one of them uh, stinky academic words. Okay. And, right. uh, you know, I'm just sort of retiring out of academia and going into full time here at Alahe. And, um, and so I'm still trying to sort of brush that stink of academia off of me. And so every now and then it pops up. But, but basically, indigeneity means like just an indigenous lifestyle or indigenous way of being. Um, and so, um, and we all can do that. It's not, you know, like being indigenous means that you understood how to live in a particular place, yeah. right? And we've forgotten that, but we can relearn that. And so we all can can be indigenous in that in that sense. And I make a difference in the book between a sort of small I indigenous and a large I, you know, capital I indigenous as the indigenous people of this particular land. So what, one of the things that a lot of people, uh, you, and you've written about this in this book and other places, uh, grew up with, especially, you know, indigenous people was a real shame narrative about being indigenous and they tried to keep it quiet and keep it covered up. And that's true of a lot of, a lot of immigrants too that, that come to a, a country where there's a Absolutely. dominant culture and it's, it's hard and it does a lot of real damage. And we live in a traumatized society because of so many issues. And so the issues of trauma continue to show up often with these repeating patterns. There can be a version of that for people that were raised in Western culture to say to themselves, that's a bad thing. I wish I hadn't done it. It's, it's mean, it's cruel. You know, it, it does a thing to people. And, and I am not going anywhere near the people who don't want to tell the truth about the history of America. What I'm getting at is you have a way of asking people to, to look at that, at those kinds of issues very honestly, to incorporate them in their lives and then to grow beyond them. So can you, can you say a, a bit about, about that, how you've seen it in your own life and how you see it for people who even have a difficult time reconciling their own Western culture upbringing? Right. Thank you. So when Edith and I first started out on this path, um, 30, three, four years ago, we, we were strictly a uh, organization that was serving our indigenous people. And we did everything. Uh, we did, you know, like uh, homeless stuff and, and um, uh, training of uh, young mothers, single moms and parenting and language classes and after school programs for kids and computer stuff and just, you know, uh, all of food closets and, you know, uh, baby needs closets and on and on and on. And we've done all of that, right? And what we realize along the way is that just if our indigenous, our native people, Native American people heal without the rest of society healing, um, it's, it's good, but it's not complete. And so at some point we said, look, we've all got to do this together. We all have to heal together, and that means we all have to look at this together. And that's when we begin thinking about the idea that that we're all oppressed in one way or another. We're all privileged in one way or another, and we have various levels in which we have to deal with that in our own lives. But what we have in common, besides our common humanity, which I think is our, our highest spirituality, um, our, what we have in common is that we can change the systems together into a better system. And so that's what we're trying to do. And, and I'm very much, when I talk about um, racism and uh, critical race theory and all those things, we're talking about systems, right? Um, systems that need to be changed. And this is I, this is where we need to gather our momentum is to change the systems. And I, I just think it's since I mentioned CRT, it's so funny that, you know, I heard a, a woman on television and she was at a school board meeting and she was saying, you know, I don't want my son to be ashamed that he's white and, you know, and all, and I'm thinking, and, and they're talking about cri- uh, critical race theory. And I'm like, 
Well, then you want critical race theory. That's right. Because it deals with the system, not the individual. And most people who write from a critical race theory perspective are talking about healing together and creating something together, a new system together. So it's so ironic how people work against their own best interests sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't, don't really understand it's, uh, the, all of those issues. And, and this way of writing short pieces that become, as you've done in the book, that become these, um, partners for people as they engage with the earth. Talk about why you did that. What, what, what's, what, what, why that approach? You know, you've written academic books, you're a PhD kind of guy. You've written real heady books. You've written children's books, as we've talked about on this podcast before. And now you've written this sort of, um, I don't know. It's not really a, uh, like a daily, well, may, maybe it's designed for someone to take up a, a section every day, a sort of accompaniment, like a journal partner. Um, but it has that kind of feel to it at least. Okay. So this is the heart of this thing. I'm sharing my human experience and my stories in this book. And, I, and there's a hundred of them. <laughs> and I'm sharing some of my de- deepest stuff. And, and I just, you know, I'm I'm kind of a, a weird bird in that I uh, I write gooder than I talk, and so uh, um, so I can get my what I really want to say, my real feelings down in writing sometimes better than than what I can do talking about them. But so in these books, I share. You know, I'm I'm open, I'm vulnerable. I share my stories. I don't hide things. I um, it's just I'm a human being, and I've had a uh, an experience as a human being. And to me, that's very spiritual. And our spirituality is heightened when we understand ourselves in context of the earth and what I call the whole community of creation. And so when we realize that we are related to um, everything around us and that, mm-hmm. that we have a reciprocal relationship that we can't ignore, it's either good or it's bad, but it's there. And, um, and then how to go about appreciating that? Well, so I've tried to do that in my lifetime. Haven't always been successful, but I've tried to do that. And I share a lot of that. And um, I think when you tell stories, um, people find themselves in the story. And all of a sudden, they find their own experiences coming up. And they start thinking about their own lives. And so, in a way, these are 100 stories, short stories, if you will, to to help people relate to um, what I go through as a vulnerable person and hopefully bring out the vulnerability in themselves. And I, I believe a little bit of, of theology here. I believe God is the most vulnerable being who exists hmm. and that, that we are at our most spiritual and human, you know, our most, our humanness is our most spiritual time when we can be vulnerable. And so I've tried to express some of that in the, in the stories that I tell. And it's just, it also was a great exercise for me. It brought up a lot of good memories of things I'd forgotten about. And so um, you really get to know me at a very personal level. Uh, not that that's a big deal, but I am a fellow human being. So, Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of ambitious efforts. Uh, I like big, bold things. Did, at some point, did you say to yourself in the putting this, in, while putting this book together, Maybe a one hundred was not the best uh, best idea, or did it feel more like how am I going to keep this thing to a hundred? No, I got to sixty, and and then I just went dry. Uh huh. And I talked to Edith, my wife, and I said, "Should I like write and see if we can change this to like sixty <laughs> days?" Or, you know. And she, and all of a sudden, she starts saying, "Well, did you talk about you know this experience? And did you talk about?" you know, the, the little dot, our, our basset hound we used to have. And did you talk about, you know, and she started naming all these different things and sunsets and, and I'm like, uh, the wind and, you know, and I'm like, Oh no. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I sat down and I got 40 more. I mean, not, not in one day, but, uh, yeah, it all came back. So I think it was, I have to give that credit to my wife uh, when I hit my dry spell, but yeah, it was a, this was in some ways the hardest book I've ever written, but it was also the most, um, fulfilling for me as a, as a writer. Talk a little bit more about the power of story. I recently heard an interview where you talked about, uh, non-Western people have advantages in understanding what story is, therefore understanding what Jesus was all about, and therefore understanding what the gospel is. Uh, right. In Western culture, we have sort of an obsession with categories and neat definitions, as we mentioned. 
talk a little bit more about story and how that's that's different and possibly more powerful. Yeah. So part of the failure modernity is to tr- try and take shortcuts that mm. um, that really haven't been helpful. So we take shortcuts in um, like uh, propositional thinking, right? So if we can only do steps one, two, three, and four, you know, things, it, but people don't relate to propositions. They don't relate to chopping the Bible up, for example, up in these verses and numbering them and everything, what they relate to is story. And since you mentioned, you know, the Jesus, and let's talk about that for just a second, um, the Bible is 90% narrative. I mean, that should floor some people. <laughs> you know, and I, I used to say it was 75%, and then I was corrected by a couple of the, my colleagues who are Old Testament professors, and, and they said, no, it's 90% narrative, it's 90% story. And so all of a sudden, it really hit me. If you don't understand story, you don't understand what's happening in all of these scriptures, right? Yeah. And um, and so, you know, and I, I deal with this part back in my book, Shalom and Community Creation, but it's like the Western world has beliefs, right? And so when they hear a story, they're looking for the facts. Right? First, first question, did this really happen? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. secondly, what are the facts that I can draw out of this? And then Whereas indigenous people all over the world, when they talk about story, they're like, what's the truth of the story? No one really even asked, did this happen? It doesn't even matter. What matters is the person is telling the story. And that's another thing. The people who wrote these stories were more indigenous. They weren't Western, you know, enlightenment bound people. And so they weren't writing them. They never intended uh, the people who wrote these stories never intended them to be taken and picked apart and and uh, modulized and categorized in the way the West has done this. And we've ended up with this really perverted uh, sense of Christianity mm-hmm. and a really perverted sense of what the gospel really is. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's and so who is more qualified? Um the first thing I, I'm going to do is understand, you know, what has this person done to work on their own Western worldview? Because if they're still interpreting with that DNA, you know, it's going to lead me somewhere different than where the writers intended. Mm-hmm. This is really important stuff because, you know, whole religions have been built upon this. Not not that Jesus came to start a religion. I don't believe he did. I think he came to start a movement. You know, he, he was all about, like, follow me. You know, just wherever you're at and whatever you're doing. And we've made a religion out of it. But, um, you know, it's a it's a weird religion because of the Western worldview and the uh, binary thinking and the platonic dualism and the extrinsic categorization and the hierarchies and, you know, uh, the anthropocentrism, this, you know, human beings above nature and all these weird things that came out of this Western worldview were never meant to be applied to these stories. Hmm. Yeah, and the, and that list that you just went through there may be terms some people have, are familiar with that may be new to others, but those aren't just like, those aren't terms of analysis. Those are actually categories that people are taught. Like I went to seminary and those were categories we were taught, like a course on Platonic thought and how to first study Plato and Aristotle and then to apply that to the Bible and, and how to systematize it. I had a whole section on systematic theology and how you would reorganize the Bible. I mean, we were taught this stuff. We we're taught the original languages so we could pull it all apart and put it back together in, in another way that would be more useful for these days. So th- Sometimes those systems are are hard to understand how we got here, and other times they're really quite obvious. Like people's fingerprints are all over the the crime scene. You know, it's it's yeah. clear. If if we could do a real quick history, just yeah. a very simple, real quick history. So Plato, um, you know, who was uh, you know uh, the student of Socrates, um, he very much believed in something that we now call Platonic dualism, and that that privileges the ethereal, the spiritual, the mind, etc., things you can't touch, over the physical, you know. And, and so it went through the ages. He taught his student, who was Aristotle. His student was Alexander the Great. And so Hellenism, which is the Greek thinking, Greek worldview, was then taught to the whole known world under colonialism under Alexander the Great. And so it goes along and it spreads into Europe and everywhere else. And then they have what Europeans call the Dark Ages. And they only call them the Dark Ages because they compared them to 
uh, what happened between the 14th and 17th centuries, and that was the uh, Renaissance, which was the awakening or the um, spreading again, if you will, of Greek thought and Greek architecture and Greek art and Greek literature and just philosophy, all of those kinds of things. And there were two evil twins born during that period. And we know them as the Enlightenment. People like Descartes who said, uh, you know, I am a mind, but I have a body. Um, so that, so that the material world is, is seen as lower. And, uh, the second evil twin was the Reformation. And the Reformation calls people to this sort of theological scrutiny that comes from the mind and systemic and Calvinism. And it says, you know, on and on and on. And this kind of weird thinking that never meant to be applied. And so that, so that it's no surprise that in America, we have this totally disembodied theology. You know, we don't do, we, we think by knowing we're doing. And um, that's not at all what Jesus taught. Not yeah, at all. If you just believe the right things, that's what it's right. about. Yeah. You know, I think some of the helpful parts of that quick recap, um, you know, uh, drone shot of history is that we realize indigenous thinking and this, what's often referred to as Western thought, they're both quite old, right? Like it's, it's not like people should think, oh, this in this Western thought we're thinking of sort of popped up, you know, in the 20th century. It's been around for a long time and has influenced an awful lot of the structures of culture and especially of religion. Christianity grew up inside of the cultures that were becoming enamored with this Platonic and Aristotle way of viewing the world. So it's really difficult to extrapolate that. Indigenous peoples didn't engage those ideas at the same rate or at the same time. And so there's a competing way of viewing the world. Now, th there's also others, right? The, the great, great line about, you know, we call it the Dark Ages because not a lot happened. Unless you're a Muslim and they call that period the rise of the Ottoman Empire and that's when great things were happening across the East, you know, all, all kind of like, you know, science and math was exploding at the time. The reason Western civilization calls it the Dark Ages was, well, because it wasn't the people of the West that were having their their heyday. That didn't come till 1400. But, you know, 800 to 1400 was the rise of the Ottoman Empire. And you get all kinds of brilliant thinking that came out of those periods. So what we're dealing with are these these structures of thought and these structures of action and these structures of culture that become so rooted that it's really hard to unravel them. And then you write this book, Becoming Rooted, like rooting in another, in another soil or in another, um, in another uh, ecosystem. Uh, so back to this idea, you want to see us uh, know that there's more options available. That's that's my reading of it, not yours. You can f feel free to correct it. But what what I'm picking up from this book is that you're saying, hey, th those things you've been taught that feel like they've been around forever and seem almost inarguable and just statements of truth, they're not. They're not that. Uh, we made them. We can change them. And there's other partners that can help you see the world in some in some new ways. Does that? Is, is that a, a fair reading of, of some of what you're saying? I think so. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm out and I'm clearly in the book. I clearly point out this isn't just like a, an individual sort of devotional. This is actually, in, in fact, I end every um, uh, chapter, 100 chapters of just you know, bite-sized stuff. I end each one with a sort of an action point. There's something that you can get out and do. And that's to break up the platonic dualism, right? And so um, uh, what we need to do then is to understand that the earth is our, our, our deepest and longest lasting teacher that we have to learn from. And so what I was trying to do is just push people out to do something. And, um, yeah, and they'll, they will break those cycles as they experience other things. And that's how you break those cycles is through experience. You can't, I mean, you have to use your mind, of course, but, uh, you can't just just do it through your mind. You have to get out and do stuff. And so, um, yeah, these old formulas and these old things that we're processing, it's happening both internally, 
But we also have to see it in a systemic way and begin to change systems and support the systems or the, the, uh, the entities that are out to change those systems. So, for example, you know, we, we provide an experience here at Alahe for people to have, you know, an experience with us, experience as sort of an in, indigenous weekend to find, to help them fall in love with the earth again, to contemplate, to have a good time and joke around and experience native values. So um, that's our what we do. But there are other organizations who are, for example, trying to create uh, right, human rights for the earth so that we can protect the earth. And we don't have lobbyists like that. And so we say, you know, hey, how about supporting these organizations as well? And I do that in the book as well, because um, it's going to take not just individual change. That's a very American individualistic way of looking at it. But it takes systemic change. Yeah. And it and it feels like we're we're in a different place around that a little bit, right? It feels like we're kind of getting there. You, you mentioned Earth Day Tom- tomorrow's Earth Day. I mean, from the time we're recording this, so tomorrow's April twenty second. I was doing a bit of reading about the history of Earth Day, and they they it was a college campus movement actually from some people that wanted to infuse understanding of the Earth and really, especially around issues of pollution and so on, into the anti war movement. So they wanted to work on college campuses, and they picked April 22nd because it was in between spring break and the end of the school year. So they just found a, a, a particular day. So there's no real reason why it's April 22nd. But it is 52 years that it's been a national movement, rec- a nationally recognized movement. Thank God but for the hippies. <laughs> thank God for the hippies. But, but, when, but when you're an indigenous person, you don't have... April 22nd is Earth Day. Like, you know, it's just a thing we do. Like, let's have a Mother's Day and a Father's Day. And, you know, kids used to ask, when's Kids Day? My dad would say, every day is Kids Day. Are you kidding me? But <laughs> we pick a certain day to kind of direct some attention. So maybe if people are listening to this, you know, on the day before Earth Day or they're listening to it on, on Earth Day itself, that's a good day to start your, your your 100 days. You know, I sort of think about people that go through recovery and they do 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't know. You could do 100 uh, days of being aware and attentive to to this with you know, Randy's book as an as accompaniment. That's um, a great idea. Let me interrupt you real quick. Just yeah, in, um, what we did is we started, it, it was released on January 4th of this year. And we started, uh, I forget the exact dates, but we started on my Facebook page, Randy Woodley author speaker page. And we did a hundred days together, went through each section and people would comment about what they're reading as we went nice. through each day. And, and uh, it ends on earth day tomorrow, but instead we're celebrating live here at Ayla Hay. Um, on Facebook Live, uh, we had several Facebook Lives during that time as well. But with the hundredth day, and I'll do the the reading from the hundredth day, and we're having a big celebration. And oh, you know, I think great. we're expecting about seventy five people. Um, what what actually, time is that happening? Th- that will be at three thirty Pacific time. But yeah. oh, I'm sorry the the Facebook Live will be at four thirty okay. uh, Pacific time to five. It's just going to be a, sh- a short time. Yeah, and uh, we have also a special announcement to make during that time and. Um, we've got like three churches that I know of who are all showing up tomorrow all day and working up until we do the, the broadcast. And, right. and so we're just getting a lot of support and help and we, we appreciate all that. Um, but yeah, this is, so we're going to end it there, but there's no reason then that other people can't begin it there. <laughs> it's the starting day. Yeah. Or if is the day you start, that's perfect for the people who missed out on the, because there is something about doing these things together and that's, you know, not not only because it's just better to do things with people, at least most things it's better to do with people, but it reorients you a little bit to, you know, you told that story about Edith reminding you of, you know, 40% of the stories. We, we sometimes need people to remind us of the things that we know, right? That's, that's yeah. the, to remember is a hard thing. And um, the, and the practices in the book obviously are meant to remember us, to make us members again into a human community of creation. Um, but even the approach to Earth Day and the approach to a lot of environmental work, and especially the, there's a Christian movement of environmentalism called creation care. A lot of that stuff feels a little bit like there's still a separation and there's a caregiver and there's a care recipient and humans are the caregivers of the earth. You're getting at something, something other than that. Yeah. So I think 
no one has a right to own your relationship with the earth. First of all, um, this is um, this is something personal, and I, from my own belief system, it's a gift from Creator. The earth is a gift. Um, and and I'll, I'll quote somebody who I don't often quote, but Wendell Berry, um, you know, a white dude who uh, writes a whole lot about farming and the earth and things like this. Um, he 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 had a phrase in one of his things that somebody read one time, and I caught it. And he said, he talked about, you know, and, and for Christians, when you hear the grace of, the next thing you're going to expect to come out is God or the Lord or, you know. And he said, the grace of the earth. Mm. And we are living by the grace of the earth. Everything we have comes out of it. There's not one thing that you can see in this world that doesn't come out of the earth, even rain. And so uh, in clouds. And so this earth is this great gift that we have, and it's our longest lasting teacher. And it's meant to have the deepest thing. It was there before the Bible. It was there before churches. It was there. And so we all have a right to that. Okay. And so that's part of what, what I'm saying in this thing. But then the cultures who have lived with it the longest and are still somewhat intact. Um, we're we're also losing our cultures and things, but but we're still someone intact. It's not too late to reclaim those things, um, that wisdom, and so we need to look to these elders and other people who have that kind of a wisdom to to help us along. But um, but I want to make sure everybody understands is that that this is their God given right to have a relationship with the earth. Yeah, and there's a real sense of urgency with this conversation. I. I saw on the news, um, you know, there's a new climate report, and one of the scientists involved in that chained himself to like the front door of a Chase Bank to protest and try to draw attention because if we don't act soon enough, the consequences are catastrophic. Absolutely. You have an agenda in this book to get people to wake up and be more connected to the earth. But not stop there. We need to change the systems. What are you hoping the average person will do to get involved in this? Yeah. So there's a there's a whole list of things that uh, that I, I I do refer to in here, and and part of it is just supporting organizations that are that are actually doing really good work. But there's one thing that we all can do, and that is in our own particular communities, we can ask for what we call Earth rights. So there, um, we first heard of this in uh, Cochabamba, um, Bolivia, and then Ecuador, and they uh, created a constitution that gave the earth rights, mm-hmm. constitutional amendments that gave the earth rights. And so that means you can't, the earth has a right to exist without our interference. You can't pollute it. You can't tear it up. You can't, you know, and now big industry doesn't like that, right? So it's got a lot of enemies. But there are cities in the United States, for example, that have adopted, at least to some degree, things like that. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has adopted mm-hmm. some laws like that. Santa Monica, California. And so um, as we, we look at our own communities, we can all start to look at those models and, uh, and figure out ways and strategies to begin to change that. The fastest way to stop what's happening on the earth in a negative way, what's happening to the earth, is to give the earth rights. I think it's mm-hmm. ironic that, you know, they gave uh, um, corporations human rights, right? <laughs> but the very earth that those corporations stand on doesn't have human rights. And so what we need to do is, is protect the earth. And the fastest way to do it, it's not the only solution. It's not, it may not even be the best, but, but it is the fastest way to stop the horrible, horrible onslaught of uh, damage to the earth right now. Uh, is to give the earth human rights. And so we can do that in our own communities, counties, cities, municipals, etc. And then we need to learn how to make our cities into parks. <laughs> yeah. the other thing. Our cities don't have to be built the way that they are. They yeah. actually can be built to be sustainable. But uh, we need to look at examples like Curitiba, Brazil, for example, and other places who have taken seriously that they want a good living situation for their people. So we have a lot of room to grow um, and a lot of places to go. But, you know, I'm, I'm confident in, uh, you know, even though you're an older millennial, Dan, I think, <laughs> I think you guys, you, I'm, I'm, I'm passing the baton and, and I'm hoping that you and the, the, the Gen Z's who have their own sort of special yeah. characteristics uh, can make those changes because the, our future depends upon it. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I could sit here and tell us all the bad things. I have all that listed. I've been studying that for since 1999, you know, and, um, but, but we know all that already. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is, is mobilize and change. Did you happen to see that documentary that was made um, where the nature photographers went out right when the global shutdown happened because of COVID and you watched the earth, something like the day the earth changed or something like that. And it was, uh, uh, what's his name? The British guy who, uh, uh, yeah, that that is so incredible. So doesn't that give you, doesn't that give you hope? I mean, when you watch that, you go, Oh my gosh, if we can just do even a little bit, look, look how nature responds because the earth knows something we don't. And nature yes. knows something we don't. And our job is, you know, back to the idea of, um, you know, stewards, et cetera. We're actually caretakers. We're, but we're more than that, what we are is co-sustainers. Human beings, I think, are the only creatures that can mm-hmm. sort of like keep this balance and this harmony. And so that's our job. That's our number one foundational job as human beings is to co-sustain the earth. And so, um, and so we, we have to take that seriously. Um, but if we can just do a little bit here and a little bit there. Nature is adaptable. And this is the whole thing about the West. The West builds systems built on what we call homeostasis, you know, that everything stays the same. You know, you, you economically, they depend upon it. Um, power and positions depend right. upon it, et cetera. And so they want homeostasis. They want things to remain the same. But what will happen to homoge- homogeneous systems is that they will either be um, destroy themselves and fall, collapse on themselves, or they will be consumed by another adaptable system. And nature is adaptable. So as human beings, we have to learn to be adaptable and flexible if we want to make it. Yeah. And look, humans are facing a situation where, you know, the earth is going to be here. There's going to be a planet, but it can be harmed and damaged and become very inhospitable to the kind of life that we think it should have, right? That it's, I know we all talk about, you know, we don't want to destroy the earth and there's, there's no talk of it disappearing or being obliterated. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is it becomes unlivable. And there are times, you know, you look back at the 1970s and man, there were rivers burning in Ohio and the smog in LA was literally unbreathable. I think in the 18 somethings, the hundreds of people died in one Christmas day in London because the, the smoke from yeah. ash from, you know, fireplaces, like we've been doing crazyville stuff uh, for a long And then sometimes there's little successes here and there, you know, and we need to, to lean into those and not, and, you know, kind of the, the do no harm attitude. Um, and then also sort of embrace the fact that, you know, the earth is a part of this large ecosystem. You know, we're, we always joke at the beginning, we complain about, you know, that's been mean weather, but that's only because it's mean to me. And I want to be outside on, you know, walking around a bike or playing pickleball. It's, it might be actually really good for the earth, you know, to have a cool day and to, uh, to get some water and to get some rain. And, and that's one of the things that our systems and society don't really allow for is any kind of rest or any sense of being dormant and letting something rekindle energy and renegotiate where growth is going to come from. These are all things that, you know, we, we really could, we really could and should learn. I just worry sometimes that like some individuals wanting, you know, all of us to have a different experience in the woods or, you know, you think about the, the, the foresting effort in Japan or where people go spend hours in the forest, you know, it's, yeah, those are one-offs and really good, and they're great for people's physical and mental health and, and all of that. Do you feel any hope, though, on the larger sense that, like, you know, Mike Dufresne writes in the comments here that, you know, you got people like Vladimir Putin taking over land. You've got wars all the time over land. You have people taking and destroying and just wreaking havoc. Um, we've always been doing that as human beings, right? So No, we haven't. Okay, talk I mean, about that. The, the the West has always been doing that um, since mm-hmm. the, the you know nation states and the formulation of nation states. But um, there's a number of things I can point to. Now we in in Native America there it was no utopia. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm saying that there was way more diversity uh, than there probably has been ever since uh, 1492. Um, before 1492, um, I'm saying that war was fought differently. And uh, it was by and large, because every tribe was different, but by and large was not about taking other people's land, was not about religious belief. There was no religious wars here, you know, in, in uh, there was a tolerance in terms of that. And so, um, and so, 
And indigenous societies fight differently for different reasons. It usually has to do more with survival than it does anything else. And and so people haven't been trying to, that's one of the myths uh, of uh, mm. sort of the modern age is that all people have been trying to take each other, the other over since the beginning of time. That's just not true. Mm. It's a Western paradigm and, and, but, and, but not just endemic to the West, right? I mean, other yeah, people right. doing it too. But, and then there's also been some studies that have shown that whenever men are in charge, you know, more matrilineal matriarchal or patriarchal societies and patrilineal societies that they're much more apt to be violent and try to take over other things than when women are in charge. So I, you know, I'm all for like, I think it's time for for at least a hundred years to like put women in charge of everything. So, um, you know, maybe we can, we can have a better world that way. I I do too. Uh, there are some movements in the Republican party where there's some women there that I don't think should necessarily be in charge of all things, but we can, not not, not every single one of them, uh, (laughs) I can rattle off a couple of names. Uh, but I think you are, you are absolutely right. There's a study that I heard the person who was a part of it, uh, describe, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it had to do with, uh, they, they were testing the impact of a, of women being in boardrooms for companies and they tested like put neural uh, uh, sensors on people's brains and tested like testosterone blood levels. Mm -hmm. And when there were just men in a room, certain brain patterns were different than when women were in the room and testosterone levels went up and just the mere presence of a woman being in the room, not, not even talking or leaving or anything caused this change that separating out and putting only men in charge of things, which has been the situation in an awful lot of, including this particular podcast short of, you know, Melissa and Barbara and others on the chat. It's a, it's something we really have to notice and pay attention to and know that that, that produces a certain kind of uh, moment and a certain kind of human human experience yeah we and, are, and we are the earth. without women I, I heard on npr one time there was a study about dodge city kansas right back in the heyday and it was the deadliest town in the united states you know more people were being murdered well do you know that, that the uh, average age of a person in dodge city kansas at the time was 21 years old and they were all male so wow. you know that's why they were all killing each other like Lord yeah. of the Flies, the Wild West. Yeah, so so we we definitely need to be doing some um, power shifts here, and when it comes to giving women their rightful place in, in leadership, and and uh, or not giving it, but them receiving it yeah, right. in the way that it should have always been. Tomorrow we will uh, talk uh, with astrophysicist Paul Wallace. So I, th- I don't know if you know Paul or not, but Paul's uh, out of Decatur, Georgia, teaches at a at a college there as a pastor and an astrophysicist, and anyway. Mm-hmm. You all run in the, some of the same circles, so you guys should know each other. We spent a lot of time talking about the sky, and we spent a lot of time talking about planets and the sun and the moon and uh, solar things. And I bring that up because when you're talking about the Earth, you mean all of those things, right? It's the entire ecosystem that is, I guess, referred to as nature. Is is that right? Not just yeah, so, so I, I'm, I really, you know, I appreciate, I love the stars. I appreciate the planets and I appreciate astronomy and all that kind of stuff. But, but I, I only know the earth. And so I can only speak from the planet that I'm living on. And I think if I can concern myself with that first off, then I have room for everything else. But um, we've got to do a good job with the planet that we have. So I'm not a fan of the Mars trips, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, there's so many things we could do. We could cut 3% of our military budget and feed the world. We could, you know, the one trip to Mars could have probably done incredible things in our country. So we've got our priorities wrong. And that's because we're still all that American individualism. And so if we can look at the planets and astrophysicists, astrophysicism, all of that. And every other Friday, you tried to say astrophysicist. You tried spelling yeah. astrophysicist when you're typing <laughs> fast. <for laughs> if, we can, if we can look at it from a corporate and more indigenous worldview, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. then I might, I might be able to, but I haven't had anybody present that to me yet, so I need mm-hmm. that. And, and so we're looking at, like, what's best for all of us on a corporate level instead yeah. of like what are some one person's ambitions or a couple of people's ambitions. Yeah. You know, this would be a fun, we should, we should do a conversation sometime with Paul and you and all and talk, you know, about the sun and the stars and the moon. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's yeah, there's a, 
I mean, this all this is new in, in a lot of ways, new to me in so so many ways. So bringing all that together would be a really fun conversation to to have and to to find those how those things are interlinked and and yeah. shared with each other and what our Earth is. You know, this whole thing about how we even got this Earth is just still bonkers. I mean, but every other Friday we talk to astrophysicist Paul Wallace. I'm like, okay, hang on a minute. So again, a bunch of rocks collided together and started spinning around and that's how we got this thing. Like it just still is uh, just magnificent to me to to think what what it is we're talking about here. It's really just beyond miraculous. You know, it's mind bending. We have as many stories as there are peoples and even more actually of, of, how these things began in our Native American ways. And, you know, some of them might sound absurd to people, but there's still truth to learn from them, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you, you look, you, I mean, the things scientists are telling us are real sound absurd. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't, you can't match uh, the absurdity of uh, create any, uh, you know, people groups creation narrative with when they start talking about, you know, big bangs and expansions and stardusts and things moving. And it, it's all just beyond the, our capacity. And every one of these narratives about how we got here contributes something to us for the, to the human experience. And we're only better it seems when we hear, you know, all the, um, all the stories, uh, and they're all, and, they're all stories, right? All but, stories. I mean, yeah. But are they good stories? I guess that's the question. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and are they a story that, 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 that you want and that you hope to be true? I've been, uh, I mean, we only have a couple minutes left here, but I've been fussing around with this idea of what are the beliefs that any of us hold? Just pick one uh, or, or set of them. And then what are the beliefs that you hold and you truly believe it, but you kind of hope it's not true? Right, and what are the beliefs that you hold that you really do hope hope are true? Because the truthfulness of them, sort of, you know, it's not not necessarily contingent upon your feeling about them. But there are some things that I think, boy, that would just be better if 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 that is true, and it would be better if this thing I believe actually isn't true. Just kind of having a different relationship with our beliefs as well as with what we think is true and with the stories that we've been told feels like an important part of the. Of, of the human project. But Randy, I want to ask you one more thing because we're kind of reflecting on, you know, I'm 55 years old. I, I can't remember how old you are, but I feel like you're somewhere in that ballpark. At 10. And you're 65. Yeah. It feels like, um, and we've known each other a long time. I can't remember how long, but I don't know, a couple of decades. Like we were younger men in t- together in some things at other times. And it feels also like there's something about an, a stage of life that allows people to engage with the earth and engage with body and um, differently. Do do you, do you sense that as you were writing this book and thinking about these things and talking about them, that your own state of life feels different? The way I would describe that is I've always been having these experiences, but I didn't realize how rich they were until I got older. So I've had this relationship with the earth and um, and I had these rich experiences when I was younger and things like this and and that I that I savored, but I didn't appreciate them for really what they are. I didn't see how they how important they were until I got to be an older person and begin to reflect upon them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that this book did was this brought those stories out and it made me realize as I'm writing, I'm like realizing how precious these times were and what they meant. And so um, so, yeah, I I would say that um, it's the the deeper reflection maybe that we have that causes us to uh, feel differently about our relationship with the earth. And, but, it, but it's always been there, right? Hopefully it's been there. Um, I know, I know it's hard for people who like are brought up in urban situations all their life and never spent time outside. But even in an urban situation, the community of creation is still around. I mean, you know, it's not like it's absent. It's just that we're so blinded by everything that humans have created that we forget that there's, the whole community creation in which our creator has made. Right. Yeah. Just look at that little crack in the sidewalk or that pothole in the road as a little whisper that, uh, that the earth is here and doing a thing. It isn't just going to sit there and take it, you know, it's uh, alive and well, well, Dan, you got, you have anything else for the fine Randy Woodley? No, just thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time. Randy, anything else for us? Well, I'm just, uh, you know, appreciate Doug, everything that you've done. We've known each other a long time and, you know, you're still at it. I appreciate that. 
Uh, and uh, we're, um, you know, maybe we're not going to change the whole world, but we're going to change our world, hopefully. Yeah. And yeah. so let's just keep going. Amen, brother. Hey, appreciate your, uh, appreciate the book. Again, for people who are just catching up, uh, Becoming Rooted is the name of the book, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. It's worth your time. And maybe start a little 100-day adventure, uh, maybe tomorrow Earth Day, or it's a great thing to do through the summer for those people who... Mm take you know the the 90 or 100 days or so of uh those summer months it's a great time to um to connect uh, and, and to the people on the chat uh, melissa and uh hardy pastor and mike and barbara and rod radha uh, others uh thanks for uh, thanks for all your good comments randy thank you for for all these things and um all right friends, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow as we talk with astrophysicist paul wallace early tomorrow morning see you around bye everybody right.